Good morning, Magdalene Road Church. It's wonderful to have a chance to share with you today. Carol and I are living in Istanbul, Turkey, so I bring greetings from there. Uh, we have lived here for almost eight years. The year before we moved here, we were worshiping with you at Magdalene Road Church when we lived in Oxford. And you've stayed in touch ever since. You've prayed for us, and we've treasured the times that we've been able to be with you. So thank you. Today I want to speak from two passages uh, in Romans, Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8, and we'll be thinking about the theme of hope. This summer, um, our family gathered for my brother Stan's funeral. The funeral was in Colorado in July. Uh, he had died in February in Thailand in a freak accident where he fell from a trellis when he was trimming a vine, uh, and his head hit concrete, and he died very soon thereafter. Um, it was a terrible tragedy for all of us, for the entire family. And as we gathered there at the funeral, I was conducting the graveside service. And at the graveside service, I said these words that will be familiar to you. I said, we commit Stan's body to the grave, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. And the words that I want to start with today and explore are those words, in sure and certain hope. Where does this sure and certain hope come from, and how can we grasp onto it? The biblical language, the Bible uses a slightly different language. In Romans chapter 5, we read, hope does not disappoint, or this hope won't put you to shame. In other words, you'll be able to bank on this hope. It's, it's the same meaning. In, in Hebrews 6, verse 19, we read, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So the idea is the same. What we say at a funeral is well-grounded in Scripture, but what does it mean? I want to explore this idea today, and it's a little bit ironic that we say these words at a funeral, because something else is happening at a funeral other than this, the body or the ashes being lowered into the ground. There's also a whole suitcase full of hopes that are being buried as well. Stan's hopes for a future in which he would enjoy his grandchildren, watch them grow up, go to events, rejoice with them. His hopes for a future with his wife in retirement growing old together, her hopes for a companion in her old age, and our hopes as a family that we would have many years to enjoy Stan's smile, his laugh, his ideas, his conversation. There'll always be an empty place at any family reunion from now on. So a whole bunch of hopes were buried, and at the point at which we were burying Stan and burying those hopes, we proclaimed one hope that will transcend death, the only hope that will transcend death, the only hope in this funeral of hopes that we say is sure and certain and will endure. And that's the hope we want to explore today. And I want to explore it by thinking, uh, using a word picture. And the word picture is a building site. I want you to imagine a building site for a moment. A building site, uh, and the building is incomplete, but the foundation has been laid. And what we're going to do is we're going to think about three things. We're going to think about the architectural plans for this building that is yet unrealized. We're going to think about the foundations for the building that can be explored, that we can go down and wander around on and stamp on and test their solidity. And then we're going to talk about the builder, the architect and the builder of this building. So we're going to use this as a metaphor to explore the architecture of biblical hope. Let's begin with the blueprints or the architectural plans. The Bible sends us in two directions for the architectural plans for hope. First of all, it send us, sends us back to the beginning. Before there was a serpent, before there was shame, before there was sin and disobedience, 
before there was strife, before there were thorns, before there was a curse, God planted a garden. And in that garden, he placed the man and the woman, the first humans that he had created, and he gave them that garden to tend. And there are some really striking things about how this garden is depicted and how God is depicted in the context of this garden. And the first of them is that God walked and talked with this, these humans that he had made in the garden. He was in intimate relationship with them. He talked to them, he listened to them, he walked in the garden with them. He was intimately present in that place. He was intimately present in their lives. And he gave them this garden to tend, and the garden and the tending of that garden is depicted as completely harmonious. That is, they had complete peace with the creation that God had placed them in. Everything was in order. Everything was in harmony. They knew their place. They neither destroyed or, nor were in danger of being destroyed by any aspect of the creation. And finally, they were in harmony with one another. That is, Adam and Eve, the first two humans, were as man and woman created for one another. They knew they were created for one another, and they looked at one another and interacted with one another in perfect harmony. The entire picture gives us a picture of peace, of the biblical shalom, peace between God and the people he's created and his creation, peace between the people themselves, and peace between humans and the created order. This threefold peace, this threefold shalom, is depicted beautifully and vividly in the Garden of Eden. The other direction that the Bible sends us for the blueprints of hope is, of course, forward. If we go to the very end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we read there about a spectacular city. And this spectacular city has within it a garden. And in the middle of the garden is a river. And next to, well, sort of straddling the river is a great tree, the tree of life. And the striking thing about this city, first of all, is that God dwells there. God's presence is dwelling there, and he dwells there in intimate relationship with his people. His people dwell there, and he dwells there, and he will be their God. And complete harmony of the created order is restored. The tree of life is restored, and it's, it's there. Revelation chapter 21 says it's for the healing, sorry, 22 says it's for the healing of the nations. And so we have this complete restoration of the created order. The lion lying down with the lamb is another way that it's depicted in scripture. But the created order, the curse, will be reversed, and everything returned to shalom. And there's harmony between human beings. There's no more strife. There are no more tears. There's no more death. Everything has become new. So what we have in Revelation 21 and 22 is a restoration of Eden, but it's more than that because there's no serpent there. Right? It's better than Eden because it's enlarged and God is more intimately involved with his people and his love is more clear and there's no whisperings of discontent. So we have these blueprints of our hope at either end of the Bible, and then we have whispers of them all the way through the Bible, right, from beginning to end. 
But when we come to Romans, and actually much of the New Testament, there's a single word that captures, that encapsulates all of this. Let's read from Romans chapter 5. First of all, verse 2. We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation itself, verse 21, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The word, well, quite obvious from the verses that I've read, the word glory encapsulates the blueprints of hope that we find depicted in Genesis 1 and in Revelation 21 and 22. Now, taken alone, the word glory will communicate to us ideas of radiance, of brilliance, of brightness. And so we think of the brilliance, the radiance of a of a sunset. And by extension, it will also be the radiance of fame, the radiance of honor, so that the victor who returns heroic from a battle will return to glory, to the fame of and the glory of that victory. And of course, it belongs most centrally to God, who is glorious, that is, radiant in every way. And God, of course, then becomes the source of every glory. But the word glory, with those connotations, powerful as it is, leaves us often without a sense of its content. Lewis Carroll had no idea what glory meant. There's this famous passage in Alice in Wonderland where he shows us that he had no idea what glory meant. And many of us, I think, can share that feeling. It's a word that doesn't seem to have very much content for us. What does it mean when we talk about glory? Genesis 1, Eden, and Revelation 21 and 22 give glory content. Because if we put those ideas together, then what, we're, what we have to look ahead to, the glory that we have to look ahead to, is a full experience of the glory of God right? in his presence. He will be present with his people, glorious with his people, and we will not just experience his glory, but we will be glorious as well because his glory will overflow to us. And so we'll look at each other and we will see each other, in each other, the glory of God. And we will see each other as in some sense glorious. And then within the created order, the remade created order, the restored created order, we'll live in a way, in such a way in which we bask in the glory of that created order, which itself reflects the glory of God. So the glory of God will pervade everything as it did, to a lesser extent, in Eden, but will fully in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem depicted in Revelation 21 and 22. So what, what do we have to look forward to? What is the blueprint that, that we have in Scripture for our hope? It is glory. A full experience of the glory of God overflowing to us, reflected in us, reflected in creation, fully enjoyed, without any fear, without any barrier, without anything to dim it. So these are the architectural plans for our hope. These are the blueprints. But it's in the nature of blueprints that they have not yet become a reality. And it's in the nature of hope that it is, has not yet been fully experienced. Hope remains in the future. It remains unrealized. But there is something that we can explore that's true in the present that is intimately connected with our hope.
And so we move to the foundations. What are the foundations of our hope in Christ? What are the foundations that are laid of this building that we're describing? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now this is a powerful statement of things that are true in the present, things that have been accomplished. We have been justified. This is a unilateral declaration of God. That is, he has declared us to be righteous. And we have gained access into his presence. This is a unilateral invitation from him. And it is for right now. It is true in the present. That access can be enjoyed right now as you're watching this on your computer screen or on your television. You can enjoy, you can experience the access with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace is true right now. It is true in the present. You have been unilaterally declared to be at peace with God. He has declared the peace. It doesn't have to do with you. You are no longer his enemy. All of these things are true right now, and all of these are acts of God. So we stand right now in the grace of God. It is a present reality, and it's because of what he has decided and what he has done. We can add to this from Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is, he has wiped away the shame and the guilt. And Romans 8, chapter 8, 15 tells us, that we have the spirit of adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we have this intimate relationship that can be enjoyed right now, where we can call God Father, where we can turn to him, where we can have a relationship of father and children, where we know of his loving care and can be assured of it, where the enmity is gone, we are no longer slaves, we are no longer servants, and all of this is true in the present. And these are the very foundations of our hope, and they are intimately connected with the building that grows from it, the building that we've been depicting. The peace with God that we experience right now anticipates the full experience of intimacy with God that we will experience in much greater depth in the new heaven and the new earth. The access that we have to him now is a foretaste of that. Now these, these are the foundations, but there is something that lies deeper than a foundation. A foundation is only as solid as what is underneath it. What lies underneath this foundation? What is it that grounds it? What's the bedrock? And the bedrock, Paul lays out for us, in, again, in Romans chapter 5, this time in verse 6. You see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Underneath the foundation of our justification, of our peace with God, of our access to God, of the grace in which we now stand, the reason we can be sure that these are a solid foundation are because they're built on the rock of Calvary. Because at Calvary, at the cross, God gave his own son to us. He did not withhold that which was most precious to us, suffered and died in order that these things might be accomplished. And if God would do that, what will he withhold from us? So the foundations are built on the bedrock of what was accomplished at Calvary. So our faith in what was accomplished at Calvary gives rise to our faith in the solidity of these foundations, and those foundations undergird our hope. 
There's something more that we need to say about this, and it, for, in order to say that, we actually have to abandon the metaphor for a while. So put aside the building metaphor. It might have worked for a while, but metaphors always reach the end of their usefulness and need to be tossed aside finally. And we'll actually insert another metaphor here. But it's it actually the distinction between present and future that this building metaphor encouraged us, that is, we have the foundation in the present and the building in the future, actually starts to break down because that distinction between present and future ends up being blurred. The future that God has promised to us invades our present in really significant ways that we actually experience quite tangibly. So, for example, in the experience of prayer, when we pray, we are praying to the Father, and we experience the fatherhood of God, but we are also praying through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The glory of God is present within us as we pray to the Father, experiencing that full peace. And the Son, Jesus, is in a sense beside us as we pray. We are in union with him through the Holy Spirit. So God has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God, surrounded us and indwelt us and poured his love out on us as we pray. That's what allows us to pray at all. So prayer itself becomes a present foretaste or first fruits of the intimacy with God that we'll experience when our hope is fully realized. Worship becomes at times, not always, but at times an amazing experience of liberation, of freedom to experience and to enjoy an intimacy with God and a worship of God and a joy in God that is a foretaste of the worship that we'll experience in heaven. It's not always that way. It's interrupted by the sin that entangles us. But sometimes there's this amazing freedom that we experience. Church, that is the community of believers, uh, is sometimes, when it's at its best, a picture, a foretaste or first fruits of the intimacy that we will experience the love that we'll experience between one another when we are finally freed from sin. And that's why in the church, disunity and strife are a defiling of the glory of God. Because the glory of God is depicted in the church, the glory of God reflected in the love that he gives us for one another. And when that love is defiled, then it defiles his glory. So we have these marvelous, vivid promises. We have the blueprints. We have these solid foundations that we can explore that are true in the present and are intimately connected with the hope that's promised to us. We have foretastes of that future hope that have invaded our present that we experience in prayer, in worship, in relationship with one another, in relationship with God. How can we be sure? How can we say with confidence that this is a sure and certain hope? How can we say with confidence that this is a hope that will not disappoint? How can we say with confidence that this is a hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure? Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is this God that is for us and that we know is for us because of the love that he poured out for us at the cross because he did not withhold his only son? Who is this God? He's the God who spoke a word and the universe came into being. All it took was a word. What he says becomes reality. Nothing that you see around you exists apart from his word. This is the God who sustains everything by his word. That is, he 
his word is what allows everything to continue to exist. And if he was to stop speaking, then everything that is would stop being. There would be nothing. He's the one who breathes life into us and on whom we depend for life. And without him, we do not have life and we die. He's the eternal one who needs nothing. He's the one who never sleeps. This is the God who is for us. And this is the God who says, this hope is sure. It is an anchor for your soul. Can we believe him? If we don't believe him, then we have not understood who God is. But for now, for now, we're still beside that graveside. We're still looking through tears at these realities. We're still experiencing the pain of death, the entanglement of sin. We're experiencing all of these things which show that our hope has not yet been realized. What does God have to say to us at the present time? What does God have to say to us as we look out from our isolation into a dystopian world, as we look at the news and see a world that seems to be falling apart, where despair seems to be everywhere and growing, and where we ourselves may feel lonely and tempted to despair? What does God say to us in the place that we're at right now, or as we stand beside a graveside, facing the reality of that funeral of hopes and the death of those we loved and the loss that that represents, what does he say to us then about this hope? Second Corinthians chapter four is a powerful chapter about the glory of God, actually both chapters three and four. Chapter four begins and ends with almost exactly the same phrase. In second Corinthians four, verse one, Paul writes, therefore, we do not lose heart. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he says again, and therefore, we do not lose heart. Why do we not lose heart? We do not lose heart, he says in verse 18, because these light and momentary troubles that we face right now are earning for us an eternal weight of glory. And this is a powerful phrase, right? Because we have on the one hand, the troubles, which we feel so heavily, but are like a featherweight in God's economy, a feather. And we have, on the other hand, eternity, eternal glory, which is weighty compared to the feather. And we have light and momentary troubles here, which are nothing in compared to eternity. And he says, these light and momentary things won't last. They're not important, but they are earning for you uh, this eternal weight of glory. So which are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on the light and the momentary or the weighty and the eternal? Therefore, we do not lose heart because the reality is weighty and eternal. In our isolation, in our dystopian world, at the graveside, we do not lose heart because glory is in store for us, because the foretastes of glory are already experienced by us, within us, because the glory of God is around us and in us and ahead of us. And for all of these reasons, take courage. Do not lose heart. God is present, and God is allowing things in our lives to remind us that no other hope is worth grasping onto. God bless you all.